Our next speaker really needs no introduction. So, you might be sitting there thinking to yourselves, so then why are you introducing him? And I might be standing here thinking to myself, I don't know. This whole thing is a little daunting. Why don't you come up here and try it out yourself? I met Rabbi Emanuel Feldman for the first time just over a year ago in January 2017. I was living in Yerushalayim in Jerusalem and I drove across the city to the neighborhood of Bayt Vagan to Rehov Kasuto 8, that's right. I wasn't sure what to expect. I was about to meet a figure whose name and legacy are recognized and admired world over. More than that, when my wife and I first came to visit Atlanta a few months earlier in August, our first encounter with the amazing people of this community was at our first stop. It was at a dairy restaurant that shall remain nameless. We were greeted by the beloved Hirsches, by Ben of blessed memory, and by Jackie Hirsch, may she live and be well. Ben and Jackie spoke warmly about this incredible community. And when they spoke about Rabbi Emmanuel and Rabbi Sinistel, they spoke really as children speak about their parents. This left a deep impression upon us. And months later, as I pulled up to that apartment in Jerusalem, I was eager to find out what was the secret of this great rabbi's success? What was it? I knocked on the door. Rabbi Emanuel and Rabbi Zinistel were exceedingly gracious and yet surprisingly down-to-earth and downright funny. The most defining moment at that meeting was when I turned to Rabbi Emanuel and I asked him, what were the goals in your rabbinate? How did it affect your daily schedule? How did those goals shape your accomplishments? He looked at me plainly, and he answered honestly. He said, I didn't really have any goals. Do you know my son, Ilan? No, I answered. Ilan Feldman? Which Ilan Feldman? Oh, Ilan D. Feldman. Of course I know him. I mean, Emmanuel continued, he said, well, he's more that type. He's more of a dreamer and of a planner, and boy, what a job he's done. But for me, I just woke up every day and tried to do the best I could. Then he added one line, which I will never forget. It's really the reason that I came to the apartment that day. He said, my father, Zal, quoting his father, a blessed memory, he said, my father always said, you have to keep in mind that Hashem also, God also has a stake in the show. You'll have a lot of help. You'll have an amazing board. You'll have dedicated gabayim, wonderful congregants, and an developing dedicated community. And there's always more to do. But remember that Hashem also has a stake in the show. So you need to leave room for Him 
to do his part. And don't try to do everything. It was then that I realized that the secret of Rabbi Emanuel's success was not a secret, but it was the open recognition that Hashem is always at the center, and we must never, ever lose sight of that. Ladies and gentlemen, Rabbi Emanuel Fellman. gets up and starts talking. The, the introduction I used to get on high holidays when the president was before my sermon. Uh, the rabbi's about to give a sermon with the ushers, please close the doors. <laughs> that was the best introduction I ever got. The only introduction I ever got. I never quite figured out are they closing the doors to keep people from coming in or to keep people from going out? I'm still wondering about that. At any rate, thank you for that very beautiful introduction. The hour grows late, and it's really not a time for, uh, for a lengthy talk. Someone mentioned to me not long, a few minutes ago, how long are you going to talk? <laughs> the person was probably very worried, you know, because he was looking at his watch when he asked me. <laughs> and I was reminded of a comment that my mother, Olaya Hashoma, made many years ago. You may recall, some of you who are old enough may recall, that when Jimmy Carter was first nominated to be president, then uh, I was asked to come to Madison Square Garden at the nomination convention and to give the closing prayer at that convention, which I readily accepted. It looked like an exciting assignment, which it was an exciting assignment. At any rate, uh, I was gonna, it was on a Tuesday night. I was supposed to speak. I called I was in Atlanta, but I called my mother, Alea Shalom, I said, I'm going to be on TV tonight. Please be sure to tune in. She said, of course, okay. So just before I got up at the garden to give my benediction, the, de the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, his name was Strauss, I forgot his first name. Robert Strauss, doesn't it? Yeah. Comes up to me as a Texan. He says, Rabbi, try to keep it to 90 seconds. <laughs> they brought me all the way up from Atlanta for, for a 90-second prayer to God. Of course, God doesn't need 90 seconds. You do it in one second. At any rate, I spoke. I gave the prayer. The usual, you know, banalities of benediction at a convention. 
boilerplate material. And uh, the next morning, I, I only spoke 91 seconds. The next morning, I called my mother and I said, Ma, did you hear me? She said, yeah, I heard you. Now, my mother was not a, not a typical Yiddish mama. She was, Rabbi Elan remembers her, and of course my wife remembers her, but she was a very learned woman. She knew Hebrew well, she taught me Hebrew. She wrote poetry and plays and so forth. Uh, but nevertheless, there were vestiges within her of Yiddish mamahood. <laughs> Why? Because she says, yeah, I saw you last night. She says, tell me, you had 40 million people listening to you. You couldn't speak a little longer. <laughs> so I hope that my mother will understand I know she's watching. If I don't speak too long tonight, uh, because while they don't have 40 million people here, I have people here who are worth much more than 40 million people. And, but the hour is late, and I'll try not to be too very, very long. This is a very touching, moving evening for my wife and for me, personally. And I could talk for many, many hours about the history of this show. Because of the 75-year history, I was the senior rabbi for 40 years, and uh, the rabbi emeritus looking over the new rabbi's shoulder for the last 27 years. So good, a good hunk of time uh, was spent by me in, with, the, with you as members of this community in this great shul, which I was privileged to be present for since its infancy and watch it grow into really a magnificent adulthood. And you are a magnificent community. There's, there's not much for me left to say because the things I wanted to say have been said by the previous speakers. Rabbi Lon spoke about Pesach Sheni, so I won't talk about that. Others have talked about various things that I was going to talk about, so I won't talk about that. I won't have too much to talk about. But sometimes I sit in this sanctuary recently, these past few weeks that we've been here, and I just sit back and look up at this beautiful ceiling and the windows, and I let my mind wander. And I think back at the wooden house at 562 Boulevard, not far from Georgia Baptist Hospital, where I came to be the first full-time rabbi of the shul. And the images of 40 years just, just passed before me quickly, ups and downs, moments of, of, of great optimism and moments of great pessimism. 
moments of great hope and moments of, of great despair. Someone mentioned before the, the old mikvah, how, how difficult it was to use that old mikvah. That old mikvah was down on Washington Street, near Washington Street. In those days, Washington Street, those those of the, uh, the young timers here will remember the major synagogues in Atlanta were on Washington Street chairs. This was on Washington Street. Abadahi was on Washington Street before they moved up. And the mikveh was in a house off a small street in Washington Street. But all these shows moved up and the neighborhood badly deteriorated. But the mikveh remained where it was. And it was a shrink to go to that mikveh. I mean, it was a fearsome experience. It was a terrible neighborhood. At any rate, fortunately, we moved the mikvah up, but, but the mikvah was there on Washington Street. The mikvah was exactly on the spot where the old Atlanta Stadium, third base, was built. So that for many, many years, when we used to go to a baseball game, we used to watch the Braves, and someone would slide into third base, I expected a geyser of water to come out from the third base. When the umpire called safe, I figured the water would be there. The Shulas had divine guidance. One of the low points was when, after being on Boulevard for uh, seven or eight years, we knew we had to move because that neighborhood was deteriorating. And so we bought a lot. Jackie Hurst will remember this because our husband was still in school then, but he was involved in it in some peripheral way. We bought a lot on Briarcliff Road, near where Sage Hill is now. Down there, I think, in that area. We were all excited. I think Ben Oldershaw was, was going to Georgia Tech at the time, and his, his thesis assignment as an architect was to design a, a theoretical synagogue for that lot. At any rate, we spent, or we paid a deposit of $20,000 for that lot. Then to f we found out that the lot was unbuildable. It was on a floodplain, there was all kinds of reasons that we couldn't build there. So all the great excitement that we had about building a new building on Briarcliff Road, which was then like the end of town, just went for naught. And it, we lost the money that we paid. $20,000 is still a lot of money, but then it was all we had. We had to raise money and borrow money just to pay the 20000 it was a very low point in the show and we were stuck in a very, very bad neighborhood and we didn't know what to do. It was very, very dark days. So this show has had divine guidance all the way. I remember the times even after we moved up here and we miraculously, just a, a, a synagogue by then which had 150 families or so, built the original building on the Vista Road, which some of you remember. Some of you remember that every Shabbos morning we had to wait after we started dominating for the 10th person to come in 
it was months and months and months. And yet, I, I sit back in this beautiful sanctuary of ours, and I look up, and there's a minion here, there's a minion there, all of this building, there's a minion downstairs, there's a minion on the side, there's a kolel, there's four or five minyanim, every Shabbos, every morning there are several minyanim. How did all this happen? When did it happen? Somebody was watching over us. In addition to which we were blessed by the one who watches over us, we were blessed by a community, by people, by supporters who believed in the shul, who believed in what we were doing, who believed that the Torah was the key to Jewish life. And even if they weren't 100% personally observant, they gave of themselves in many, many ways, not only financially, but other ways as well, to build this shul up from scratch. Some of you are sitting here tonight. You know what I'm talking about. I won't mention any names. The greatest contribution of this shul, in my view, is that it taught the importance of Jewish passion, of Jewish caring, of Jewish learning, of Jewish davening. It taught that Torah Judaism is the aristocracy of Jewish life. I mentioned yesterday afternoon, before Mincha, we had a session right in this room. Somehow the room looked different yesterday. <laughs> um, and when I first came in 1952 to this community on Boulevard, I noticed, I noticed that they were like young children. I was young myself, I was 25 years old, but I noticed that these were like young kids who had a terrible self-image. What do you do with a child who has a bad self-image? You build them up, you know, in many ways. I knew that my role was to build up the self-confidence of this community. And week after week after week, I taught that this Orthodox Judaism, which was, as Rabbi Long mentioned, down for the count in 1952, is the aristocracy of Jewish life. And we have nothing to be ashamed of. We don't have to follow the lead of the very large communities in Atlanta that were supposedly very successful. We are the aristocracy. We are the future of Jewish life. I kept pushing on that over and over and over again. And most of the people began to believe me and we began to grow. Because how do you measure the success of a show? It's been mentioned earlier. The success of a show is not measured by how many members the show has. The success of a rabbi is not mentioned, is not measured by how many congregants he has. The success of a show or the success of a rabbi is measured by how many lives are changed, how many lives are uplifted, how much Jewish standard of living is, is, is elevated to what it was from before. That's how we measure the success 
And that's why I think this congregation has been an extremely successful one and a very, very fortunate one in having such supporters as you are. A measure of our growth over the years is the questions that were asked of me as the rabbi. I don't know, do you think many of you are going to get the reprint of Tales Out of Shul? Is that right? Yes. Uh, surprise, you're getting a surprise gift for showing up. Okay. <laughs> the, uh, the Lewises, Andy and Leah Lewis, have graciously sponsored the reprint of Tales Out of Shul, which has the history of the early part of Beth Jacob. And in that beginning of that book, I have um, a recount of the very first question that I was asked as I came, when I came as a rabbi. <clears throat> the very first question was, Rabbi, what's the Hebrew name for Nicholas? <laughs> A week after that, I had another question. What's the Hebrew name for Cleet? <laughs> Cleet Boyer. Who is Cleet Boyer? Very good. Excellent. We have a learned congregation. They, they know that Cleet Boyer was the third baseman of the New York Yankees. And he had a brother. His name was? Ken Boyer. Excellent. Ah, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I'm going to go back to Jerusalem and tell them I have a learned congregation. <laughs> At any rate, I hear this question, Rabbi, what's the Hebrew name for Nicholas? We just had a baby, we're having a bris, I have to have the Hebrew name. And I remember the sense of disillusionment that came over me. God, for this I studied Torah. For this I had written an oral examinations to become a rabbi. For this I was ordained. For this I was dreaming to have a pulpit of my own. What's the Hebrew name for Nicholas? <laughs> I gave a name, I called him Nehemiah. Okay. <laughs> but after 40 years, the questions were very different. 40 years later, I got questions even from the Nicholas himself, who became Nehemiah, who became a very, very observant Jew. I got questions from the congregation about Scharba Onesh. What does it mean? What is reward and punishment? What is a Yetzer Hara? What is the evil inclination? Is this mezuzah kosher? Are these tefillin kosher? Questions, serious questions that came up over those years. Does God listen to prayer? How does that work? So Baruch Hashem, this is a measure of the growth of the show, what concerns individuals. We never fell victim to the disease of following current fashions. 
We had convictions and we had principles and we, you, and your forebears stood by them. To quote Frank Sinatra, we did it God's way. <laughs> to paraphrase Frank Sinatra. In a few hours, Estelle and I board a plane. We're going from here to Miami, but not for a vacation in Miami. We're going to get an El Al flight in Miami to Tel Aviv. And Rabbi Long, my private chauffeur, is going to take me, us, to the airport at 4 in the morning. I leave you with mixed feelings because I love every one of you and I love this community and we love coming back here all the time. I'll leave you with a thought that a shul is not a social club. And you've known that. The shul is not about what I want, but what God wants. The shul is not about what pleases me, but what pleases God. And it doesn't matter if davening on Shabbos morning begins at eight or quarter to nine or nine, and I don't like that time and I'm gonna to go to another place. It doesn't matter if davening takes a little longer or a little shorter. It doesn't matter all these me things. It's not about me. It's about the Holy One, blessed be He who has guided us. Not what pleases me, but what pleases Akotas Boroku. Not a social club, it's not a fraternity. I bless all of you that you deny the age of selfies, because we're living in an age of selfies. Everything is a self. Think of God and not oneself. May you continue in your holy ways continue to love one another and care one, for one another and support one another. And as Mickey mentioned earlier in the film, we're just beginning. We have a long way to go. We've come a long way, but we're just beginning to go forward into one of the great, great communities of Jewish life, which we already are and will continue to be. May you all be blessed and don't take for granted what you have. To quote Robert Frost, we have, miles to, we have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. A long way to go. We've come a long way, we'll go a long way. God will watch over us. And may you be blessed with all good things. I dedicated my book old book, Tales Out of Shul, I dedicated it at that time to the congregation who followed me into the wilderness. And I quoted Jeremiah, Lech teich acharai bamidbor asher lo yadom. Yeah. Who followed me in the, the, God says, Jeremiah says, you followed, Israel followed me into the wilderness in a land that they didn't know. To the wilderness. The congregation followed me and Rabbi Lon into places they didn't know where I was going. What are you doing? Where are you taking us? But they followed, and God rewarded us all for that. 
So I love you for that. God loves you for that. And may give you long life and good health and continued growth. And we look forward to seeing you again on very, very happy occasions. This has been a wonderful evening. And I thank all of you who are responsible for making it so. Thank you.